Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Lynn Heasley to discuss her book, The Accidental Reef and Other Ecological Odysseys in the Great Lakes. Thanks for tuning in. In The Accidental Reef and Other Ecological Odysseys in the Great Lakes, Lynn Heasley illuminates an underwater world with a ferocious industrial history. Despite these pressures, the Great Lakes remain wondrous and worthy of care. From its first scene in a benighted river where lake sturgeon thrash and spawn, this powerful book takes readers on journeys through the Great Lakes, alongside fish and fishers, scuba divers and scientists, toxic pollutants and threatened communities, oil pipelines and invasive species, and indigenous peoples and federal agencies. With dazzling illustrations from Glenn Wolf, the accidental reef helps us know the Great Lakes in new ways and grapple with the legacies and alternative futures that come from their abundance of natural wealth. Suffused with curiosity, empathy, and wit, the accidental reef will not fail to astonish and inspire. As John Hartig puts it, Heasley leads the reader to see, know, and understand these freshwater seas from different perspectives, which are essential to developing a stewardship ethic. I'm excited to discuss the accidental reef with Lynn Heasley today. She's a professor in the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, and she's also the author of A Thousand Pieces of Paradise, Landscape and Property in the Kickapoo Valley, and a co-editor of Border Flows, A Century of the Canadian-American Water Relationship. Lynn, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's, it's great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. I wanted to start with the sort of origin question by asking, um, what do you remember about the first time that you saw the St. Clair River? Oh, goodness. I've been I've been going to the St. Clair River for so many years now. Um, I, I think it was the I, I think it was the juxtaposition as I crossed the Blue Water Bridge and then took a foray off into Chemical Valley in Sarnia. And Chemical Valley is 40% of Canada's entire petrochemical industry all bunched together on one waterfront section of industry. It's also a harbor that you can see across um, from Port Huron. And I'm something of a photographer too. And so I tried to stop from time to time and take pictures and had numerous guards send me on my way. And so it's a very big memory of the St. Clair River to start to make sense of that kind of Port Huron-Sarnia interface, the Blue Water Bridge, and then just the sparkling water of the river itself with its incredibly fast current. You know, in your answer, we hear so much of what makes that location perfect for a book like this. And I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on how all those industrial forces and natural features, you know, the the river mouth, the lake, everything comes together there to make this a really intriguing point from which to start thinking about ecology. That's just a, that's a fantastic question. Thank you so much for that. The St. Clair River is perhaps the underappreciated or the underrecognized sibling of the Detroit River, which in our part of the world and in Windsor gets a lot more attention, both for its environmental problems and also for restoration efforts in, in that river. But really, if you start with Lake Huron, go down the St. Clair River to Lake St. Clair, then through the Detroit River to Lake Erie, it's one 
large system. It's one large waterway and it's unbroken and undammed. And what makes the St. Clair so significant and how I, I finally settled on it is kind of my home place for a book that's really about the broader Great Lakes is because almost every environmental problem that we think of in the Great Lakes and sometimes in North America either got a very early or the first hold in the St. Clair River or the St. Clair River is an especially strong example of it. And so, for example, the establishment of invasive species like the zebra mussel, quagga mussel, round goby, that all happened right where the St. Clair River empties into Lake St. Clair. That's, that's where they first got established. And then if you look at restoration efforts, some of the most important restoration efforts for fishes like lake sturgeon also had you know, their biggest examples there. And so it's just this perfect example of Great Lakes problems and Great Lakes solutions writ large, and then how the Great Lakes are connected to other parts of the country. And I just feel like that whole story happened in the St. Clair River. Yeah, that's really fascinating to think of them all coming together there. And you mentioned a little bit earlier on its sort of role as a waterway. I wonder if you could also say a little bit more about some of the human problems that are coming together there. You know, you talked about invasive species um, and those kinds of things. What has human activity in the Great Lakes done to that particular area? Again, just right on right on point there, the, the St. Clair River itself is an example of the larger pollution issues, especially that we've struggled with in the Great Lakes and, and all over the country. And so if you think about Great Lakes history, but also this industrial history of the Huron-Erie Corridor that I write about, the industrial epicenter of the country for decades was this exact area. So if you think of the different industries that emerged on waterfronts, so think automobile, chemical, um, salt, which I write about and people don't think as much about, paper making. So all of those industries on the waterfront then contributed intense pollution. And this intense pollution affected not just the, the ecosystems below the water in there, but um, had huge consequences for quality of life and for human health too. And the intensity of that pollution in the St. Clair River is almost beyond belief. It's again, just a, a powerful example, both a victim, but also its peoples became problem solvers and trying to clean up the river as well. What are some of the examples of you know, what the consequences are of that kind of industrial pollution for communities, for human populations, et cetera? What I write about especially is the persistent pollutants, these you know, broad categories of pollutants that don't break down in the environment, but they build up in the food chain all the way to top predators. And those top predators can be some of our sport fishes like walleye, bass, lake sturgeon as well, but we're a top predator and so are bald eagles. And so, you know, if you take the paper industry, for example, and there were two paper plants in Port Huron that I write about, and they're by no means the only example. Or if you take Dow Chemical, which has a number of facilities in this area as well, you take those, they're putting those persistent pollutants in there. Those pollutants are going up the food chain, but you have very active fishing communities. You've got sport anglers, sport fishers. And then you also have First Nation communities who depend on these fisheries economically, and they depend on these fisheries in terms of their own cultural food systems as well. 
And so both the cultural and the health and the ecological whammy was trifold. And so at one point, the entire walleye fishery on the Canadian side and the U.S. side had to be shut down. And that decimated some First Nation communities in the area. And then you have sport fishers whose families regularly eat walleye. I eat walleye a lot. Um, I, I, I enjoy walleye every week if I can. Well, if I'm pregnant or if I'm a nursing mother, I have to consider what's the toxic load of that walleye that I'm going to absorb into my fatty tissues that I might then give to my child who I'm breastfeeding. And so again, it's these really intense interlocking chains of cause and effect, but the story's not only tragic. There's a lot of amazing recovery efforts that are part of the story as well. I think that's one of the things that I find so compelling about your book, The Accidental Reef, is that you walk this interesting line between looking at environmental problems and the kind of destruction that comes along with introducing something like the zebra mussel to the Great Lakes ecosystem. But then you think very realistically about what it means and what happens now. You know, now that these zebra mussels are here, things are different. They been, you know, altered from the way that they were, but the Great Lakes still exist. There are still fish populations. Some of them are learning to manage with these other species. And even something like human activity that we might point to and say, this has had a catastrophic effect also has other effects uh, in the form of the accidental reef itself. Maybe now is a good time to say a little bit about what is the accidental reef in this region of the Great Lakes. Yeah, so the the accidental reef was this small accident of industrial history that no one knew about near Algonac. And so under the water, the turn of the 20th century, you had a salt mine and and there there were great efforts at salt mining. We have huge salt and brine deposits in that part of the state. And so the loggers might switch to salt mining and then as sturgeon were being harvested, the salt mining might provide the preservative for sturgeon. Again, all these interconnections. Well, in one spot of the river, a steamship would serve one of these salt mines at Algonac and it dumped its coal waste from its furnace into the river in the same spot over and over. And if we had video, I could show you an example of what today washes up on shore and some, some people probably find it in the Great Lakes, too, on Lake Michigan shore, Lake Superior shore. But what will wash up on shore will be what looks like these little lava rocks. But what they really are is coal waste. And so in this one spot, a pile of these rocks accumulated to the point where early in the 20th century, it became almost an ideal spawning site in terms of the characteristic of these rocks for lake sturgeon at the exact moment that lake sturgeon were being driven to extinction and being slaughtered in, again, in in numbers that are almost unimaginable today. And so this this little spawning reef at the bottom of the St. Clair River by Algonac became this unknown safe harbor for lake sturgeon. And so again, it's one of those contingencies and the the location and discovery of that reef led to some larger discoveries and larger restoration efforts of lake sturgeon later. So that's what the accidental reef is. And then at the reef itself, it's not just lake sturgeon. I, I emphasize that early in the book, but you have zebra mussels there too. You have walleye, you have round gobies, you've got horny head chubs. It's an amazing little universe of life at this 
underwater reef that very few, literally a handful of us will ever see. And so one of the things I find so almost awe-inspiring about it is how it shows us that what we don't see and what we don't know about can be incredibly important, not just for how we work on problems of rivers, the Great Lakes, but also for our sense of wonder. And so that took the book in this direction of what don't I know about under the water that I'll never be able to see in this really tricky, dangerous river? And what else is going on down there? And so that took me on these journeys with Lake Sturgeon. I have a lot of compassion for for zebra mussels actually based on this because I wanted to know more about them. And so I think today, a lot of us are learning from indigenous scholars and water protectors, other kinds of activists to think of water as living, living water. And I consider that accidental reef down there to be, you know, an an incredible example of of what now we call not just the non-human world, but the more than human world, a world that we helped create and shape, in this case, unknowingly but a more than human world in which we are a really important part too. And we need to start playing our part. And so the accidental reef is, it's physically, ecologically and culturally important, but it's also symbolically important and was kind of a touchstone in the book. Yeah. I I keep coming back to that point that there's so many more repercussions to our actions than even those we predict. Like who would have thought that this collection of clinkers would turn into this ecological feature that had such far-reaching repercussions, in this case, very positive ones. I wonder if we could pick into this story a little bit further, because I'm curious to hear about how the discovery came about. You mentioned in, in your answer to the last question that discovering this accidental reef led to other discoveries of another reef in the Great Lakes. How did this one get discovered and its origin come to be understood? And why was that important to our developing understanding of Great Lakes ecology? I think I have to back up just a little bit and say that, you know, even though my different research projects and book projects over the years look different from each other and are distinct from each other, Going back to some of my very first earlier research in another life in West Africa, I've always been very interested in local knowledge and local expertise. And as a matter of fact, most of my research is not possible. And most of my writing is not possible without an intense engagement with what people know about their own places, as well as what other experts know, different kinds of scientists. And so I had become interested as I was starting to try to create a little visualization of a lake sturgeon spawn. I had been interested in these scientific articles where in the acknowledgments, I would read with the help of local sport divers or with the help of a local, you know, of local divers um, or with the help of local anglers. And I started to wonder, who are these? Who are these people? (laughs) You know, who? Who are these local divers? And, and, and that led to my next question, which was, what do they see? What do they see under there? And so one particular couple kept coming up over and over in this, in terms of, of being present in these stories. And, and so I, I thought, I want to know what they see and if they would be willing to share something of how their unique um, knowledge has intersected underwater in these places. I, I wouldn't mind knowing more about that. And they turned out to be remarkable. What was going to be a single chapter turned out to be a, a kind of braided section of the book. And so 
the story of the discovery of this reef and then the next one after that goes back to that idea of knowledge. And so you had great fishery ecology efforts in the area to study and get to know more about Lake Sturgeon. You know, this Huron Erie waterway is, is just such a critical waterway because it's, it's the longest undammed stretch in the Great Lakes. And, and Lake Sturgeon are migratory species, so they have to migrate to their spawning sites and then migrate back to their summer sojourns. And so, you know, these fishery ecologists had started to get a sense from local fishers that Lake Sturgeon were porpoising in a couple of spots, you know, one in the St. Clair River and one in Lake St. Clair. And so they narrowed it down, narrowed it down, narrowed it down. And they finally had a general vicinity where they, where they thought, oh, maybe there's a spawning reef. I and mean, this is the Algonac site. Well, in order to determine that, they needed a proof of sight. So even if they pulled in a female sturgeon who had eggs, you know, in one case that were all over the boat, they still needed someone to locate the actual reef as kind of a proof of sight. And so they got in touch in the 90s with um, Gregory A.D., that's Greg Lashbrook and Kathy Johnson, who were kind of embarking on a career as conservation divers. It was earlier in that career. And so Greg and Kathy worked with them and went down and actually located this reef for these scientists who had determined the general area. Well, that spiraled into a thought process for Greg and Kathy because they had learned a lot from these fisheries ecologists. And so Greg thought, you know, I've been diving this river for 50 years and it's a really tricky river to dive in because not only is it a big river, but the currents are really strong and it's really deep and um, lots of shipwrecks, um, and it's a border, so like you don't really want to end up on the Canadian side by accident, for instance, and then you've got freighters going overhead, and um, so all, all sorts of things that require a really high level of diving expertise. Well, Greg had been diving this river since he was 16 years old, and he and Kathy thought, you know, under the Blue Water Bridge that crosses over to Canada, we see sturgeon regularly in the spring. Is it possible that there's a spawning site there? But if there is a spawning site, how is it that we've never known about the spawning site? Because we've dived this river for decades. And so because of their work with these scientists, they thought maybe it's the water temperature. Maybe their early spring dives were not early enough to see a lake sturgeon spawn. And so the next spring, just using their knowledge of the river, using their decades of observations, Greg went into the water and Kathy kind of managed, you know, the editing. He went into the water when it was still too cool for the spawn and then repeated this every day up until the point when sturgeon are likely to spawn, you know, mid fifties and higher. And all of a sudden one day in this spring that they decided to test their own hypothesis, thousands and thousands and thousands of lake sturgeon came to spawn. And the reason that the site was undiscovered is because it was 60 feet deep. The spawn was 60 feet deep. And the state of understanding up to that time was that sturgeon spawned in shallow water, whereas Greg and Kathy went looking 60 feet deep. And this turned out to be the largest lake sturgeon spawning site, to my knowledge, in the Great Lakes. But it was completely unknown. No one had known about it. And one count was upwards of 29,000 or 30,000 lake sturgeon spawning at that site every year. And so that opened up all sorts of not just new restoration projects, but a real sense of connection and wonder and care in the local communities too. 
but that discovery of it, and, and I've given you the broad outlines of it, but it's, it's actually more detailed and interesting than that. But it traces back to how we need, we need to start deploying multiple knowledges, and they're just a particularly good example of that. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Lynn Heasley, author of The Accidental Reef and Other Ecological Odysseys in the Great Lakes. It is such a fascinating story, and Greg and Kathy do play such a central role in the book. As you say, they kind of occupy a braided section in the middle portion of the book, and their work has been really, I think, foundational to your thinking about you know the ecology and what's going on there. And there's a great section in the middle of the book where you say a little bit about your relationship uh, with Greg and Kathy and their work. I was wondering if you would be willing to share that with us now. Sure, I'd, I'd absolutely love to. And I, I still feel so much gratitude that when I contacted them out of the blue, I had been on a, on a kind of tourist cruise with Greg and Kathy during a sturgeon fest, but they didn't really know much about me and what my larger interests in the Great Lakes were as a researcher and especially as an educator too. And I approached them and asked if they would consider an oral history interview with me, drawing on their really unique perspective and their unique knowledge. And so oral history is, it's a way that you can get the firsthand experiences and perspectives of people who participate in historical events and have kind of stories to tell that, that maybe illuminate these larger histories or larger environments in this case. And so they said, sure. Um, <laughs> and not everyone would have. And so I, um, I joined them in Northport, Michigan, a little, um, a little north of Port Huron. And I joined them for a few days and we just had the most freewheeling conversations, but also I got to satisfy my entire curiosity about what is it like under there? You know, I know what a forest looks like. I've walked in them my whole life. I know what a field looks like. You know, I'm, I've picked beans. I don't know what the bottom landscape of the St. Clair River looks like. And I don't even know how it matters or if it matters that I don't know it. And so here's this very short chapter that's just setting up Greg and Kathy. And it's called An Interview About Seeing. Their near lifetime of seeing what most of us can't brought me to the Gregory A.D. home and studio an old converted country church in Lakeport, Michigan, just north of Port Huron. I had to make peace with the sensory overload of their place. A collection of naked mannequins was especially distracting. But eventually we got to the heart of things and considered the following. With respect to the waters that surround and connect us, most humans have great absences of sensory experience. Sight, touch, smell, taste, hearing, and now a sixth sense proprioception, the physicality and positionality of motion, a fluid sense of our embodiment in space. Without our sensory involvement, Lake Michigan is actually alien, at least to most of us, as in we're alienated from its world below. The same for Greg's beloved St. Clair River, home and habitat to him, absent and alien to me. What is it like to swim with a six foot lake sturgeon? To say a neighborly hello to a bristling male round goby glaring at you from the entrance to his Budweiser can, daring you like a chihuahua to threaten home and family. To watch a big, not hungry walleye hanging out near the seawall, taking a little breather from the current, inches away from some hopeful fisher's bait. To discover the largest lake sturgeon spawning site in the Great Lakes, deep, deep in the St. Clair River, a place that even sturgeon scientists and conservationists hadn't known about. 
What's it like to explore the same river for 50 years as Greg has? so that he knows the river through time and space the way farmers know every changing contour of their fields and woods. What difference does it make that he and Kathy can see the rivers and freshwater seas of the Great Lakes in ways most of us never will? Thank you so much for that. That's such a great chapter. And it does such a thorough job of asking all of the questions that I think the book is is working over again and again. You know, what, what are these environments that we're encountering? How much do we know about them? How much can we even expect to learn about them? And what kind of sense of perception or perspective do we need to bring to our encounters with them to really know what we're looking at and what we're seeing, even before we can start to think about how do we care for these environments and what can we do to protect them? You know, there's so much to be said about the book and and all of the different chapters and contexts, and we're moving very quickly now away from Um, the story of the accidental reef itself. But I want to ask you uh, this question about the form of the book, because I think that it's unusual to find a book like yours that's so, you know, scientifically informed and you know what you're talking about in terms of the Great Lakes ecosystem, the sturgeon and all the other topics that you discuss so thoroughly researched and, 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 you know, available for peer review in the way that any academic book is, but that also is so committed to the art of writing and the perception of, of reading and what one can do in that form you know, as a work of art or as a means of of engaging reader perception. Could you talk a little bit about the thinking that went into structuring the book in the way that you have around, you know, different shorter chapters? Some of them are about interviews. There's a, a one section that's um, uh, like a Harper's Index, where you're thinking about the different kinds of human industrial practices and the resources we extract from this uh, ecosystem. How did you come to writing in this way, to thinking in this way? It was a process for sure, a long process. You know, many, many years ago, I taught an undergraduate course at Western Michigan University called Great Lakes History. And, you know, I have have some wonderful writings to draw on for that. You know, I have Jerry Dennis's book, later Peter Annan's book, and then more, more recently, The Death and Life of the Great Lakes. So some some great books to draw on. But in this Great Lakes history class, students would say, how come I didn't know about this before, even though I grew up on the Great Lakes? Or I spend all of my summers on the Great Lakes. And how, how did I never know about blank? And it had to do with histories and stories. Um, and those histories and stories weren't just policy. And they weren't just one of the terrible things that have happened to this place that we care about. So I set about to write a book on the Great Lakes that compiled these histories and these stories in a way that people could see themselves in connection with each other and also in connection with things they don't know about, like how a lake sturgeon spawns. Well, the problem with that book, my original thought of the book, was it always came back to just becoming a kind of encyclopedia. You know, first there's this in Canada, and then, oh, here's Henry Ford up in the North Woods, you know, with his 400,000 acres of of woodland. And so it just always reduced itself to an encyclopedia. And that's not how we learn about places. And that's also not how we learn about what other people are doing in those places. And so finally, I just went back to basics, including, you know, where some of my own research, you know, on large scale Great Lakes issues fit in. And the basic is that We learn small places from the ground up. We learn them slowly over time. We layer them. And so you 
you can't learn the entire Great Lakes, you know, by starting with the entire Great Lakes. You have to layer it. But with the Great Lakes, you know, that layering isn't the, the forest all the way up to global deforestation. With the Great Lakes, it's what's going on underwater for its own sake, all the way up to the global kinds of issues related to Great Lakes resource extraction. And so the structure of the book is, is really a kind of layering where I start more egocentric, you know, underwater, and I introduce people with, in different ways. Um, it's, it's not all academic writing because maybe the visualization requires something that's not academic writing, but, you know, helping people start to see that more than human world for its own sake but then coming up, and then the St. Clair River stories are those kinds of levels of narrative and history that we're all more comfortable with, that kind of regional human dimension with different issues, and yet still related to the Great Lakes as a whole. And then finally, up to these really large-scale troubling issues of abundance. What does it mean when we have so much of all these different resources that the extraction is so intense. And so it's really that layering exercise to start at the bottom of the river and then move my way up to, you know, these large scale global processes. And so I don't know if that fully answers your question, but that, you know, that's a good way of understanding why you're moving through the book the way you are. And that might not work for everyone. You know, not all readers might be comfortable with that, but it's just kind of how I saw the process of getting to know a place like the Great Lakes. I really love this metaphor of the book as a kind of layering. I mean, thinking about like layers of sediment gathering at the bottom of a river and like all of the different things that get piled in there, even the reef itself, you know, the clinker lands on the bottom of the river. It's covered over by dirt and algae and other litter, as it were. And then eventually it's covered in the spawn of the sturgeon who visited annually to do their thing. It's such a great kind of way of thinking about structuring, you know, the book and your thinking around the book. And another thing that it does that I want to make sure that we emphasize is it allows you to layer into there a lot of the kinds of cultural work that isn't necessarily associated with history texts per se or scientific histories specifically. There's a lot in the book, you know, thinking about the language of classification and the way that we approach a river culturally. Could you say a bit about the argument that the book is making for humanities subjects in the face of a, a world that's, you know, more kind of siloed and specialized than it's ever been? That's something that a lot of us are struggling with right now. We've reached a point where despite their most heroic efforts, Western science and Western scientists and the approaches that go into knowing the natural world through scientific methods, they're not saving the world or saving these places that we care about. And I think there's a, a growing understanding, maybe it's a full understanding now, that we need to get back to a few basics, which is we need to be able to emotionally connect to places, even in academic realms. You'll see so much more now. You'll, you'll see a language now when you, when you listen to talks by ecologists, um, social scientists, and of course, humanists. 
you'll see a language now that's much, much more willing to accept that deep connection is an emotional connection. It's a sense of care and love for each other and for these worlds. And so that's what the humanities brings to it. The humanities brings questions of our relationships to each other and to these places, who we are, what we are. But in the context of environmental issues, also, how are we, how are we shaped and created by these other worlds that aren't just about us? And so one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book, and one of the reasons it's not purely an academic sounding book is, is I just want to own that. I want to own that it's, it's okay to care for these places, but it's also maybe really important for the poets to start going out with the fisheries ecologists <laughs> and the scuba divers and starting to see what can we learn together and what can we transform together. That's happening professionally for many of us. Um, these science humanities fusions are happening, but where it's not happening yet is at the undergraduate level in terms of curricula. So you'll have environmental studies programs that are interdisciplinary, and that is fantastic. Um, but there's still a kind of division and siloing going on where the people who are going to be the future poets aren't necessarily going to continue going out into the field for their entire program with the future scientists, their future colleagues. And so, so I think we're evolving. We're evolving in this respect. But the silos are hard to break down, and they're especially hard to break down in educational settings. Um, but in the book itself, I decided that it's okay to break those silos down <laughs> and to make those connections. And one of the ways that you do that is by having enlisted the wonderful um, illustration assistance of Glenn Wolf. Could you say a little bit about how that came to be? I mean, we should. It's unfortunate that this is an audio uh, experience because those illustrations are so vivid and so um, inspiring. How, how did your relationship to Glenn uh, result in these uh, images for the book? Glenn actually, you know, is kind of a a spiritual mentor through this because of his art. So I had been working with Glenn in some other contexts for a while. I recruited him for a water-based art exhibit, the Lee Honors College at Western, because I've been a longtime admirer of his work and, and I and I so admire his three decades collaboration with Jerry Dennis. And, and so just bringing him to Western was a great opportunity. And then one semester he worked with my freshwater students up in Traverse City. And I got to see a real community in action up there of, of Glenn as the artist, um, and he's a musician as well. Um, but with the writers, the poets, and the scientists, and the policymakers, they are, they are an exemplary example of breaking down the kind of silos that we were just talking about. Um, and so I asked Glenn if, if he would do an illustration for the Sturgeon chapter that I was writing, and could I use it in, you know, in a conference presentation as well. And so he created this, this amazing mosaic. He took my story and he made it his story in one single page. Um, and that was the beginning of it. And so, so then he, he was game to continue on and make this an actual collaboration throughout the whole book where he would take these histories and these stories and he would reinterpret it in his own way. And I almost can't imagine the book without his art right now. I I feel like, you know, maybe someone can't get through a whole chapter because they don't want to learn about filamentous bacteria in a paper mill, but they can look at Glenn's illustration <laughs> at the same time. 
so yeah, it was just another example of the kinds of um, transformative interfaces that can happen when, when, you know, when you're working on a, on a multidisciplinary interdisciplinary project. That's great. We've just been talking about the wonderful illustrations, the way that your use of culture and interaction with you know, humanity subjects and emotion and storytelling and, and local people comes together to really give us a different perspective on the Great Lakes region and the St. Clair River and the, the sturgeon and all of those kinds of things. By the third section of the book, you start to deal with abundance and really facing head on, you know, the ecological challenges raised from our desire to harvest and extract, you know, everything of value from these regions. That pressure hasn't gone away. How do you see the book contributing to our efforts to change thinking and to help preserve that region? Yes, that's probably the toughest part of the book and the biggest open question that many of us are, are grappling with now. And so that last section of the book is called The Paradox of Abundance. And, and that's actually where I started many years ago. Paradox of Abundance was originally going to be the book. And it was um, the idea of the paradox of abundance is how the immensity of resources all concentrated in one place, you know, Great Lakes white pine in the 19th century, Lake sturgeon in the 19th and 20th century, sand and salt in the 20th and 21st century, and then always water, right? Um, how the concentration of those resources has allowed the plunder of those resources, their extraction so quickly and so intensely that the rest of us haven't been able to catch up and create the kind of laws, policies, expectations that would let us slow that down and approach it more sustainably. So that's, that's the paradox of abundance. And yet we have to confront that head on. But one way to confront it is to cultivate the care and the love for the sense of wonder and, and the actual playfulness of being in these places, um, getting to know them ourselves, getting to know them in, in relation to other kinds of knowledge, scientific, indigenous, local knowledge too. And so it may be that we, we have to understand the scale of that extraction, where it's happening, what the implications are, but then we have to come back to maybe our own home places, our own regions, our own rivers, and become the stewards of those places. And that's definitely happening in the St. Clair. There's like such a strong stewardship ethic that's emerged in the last you know, two decades of the St. Clair River. But embedded with that is our own sense of joy and wonder and connection to these places. It's not an incredibly practical answer from a policy perspective or how you create an artificial reef. But on the other hand, those the policies and the science um, haven't gotten us where we need to be either. And so I think it's only, you know, by reshaping who we are and how we relate to those places um, that we have any hope of dealing with this paradox of abundance and finding ways forward that are the last 200 years. I feel like the book does an, a really amazing job of inspiring that sense of wonder and communicating that feeling of really knowing a place, you know, even one that you haven't been before and inspiring that kind of hope that it can be like loved enough to be protected. Before we go, I did want to say thank you so much for joining me again today. I've really enjoyed this conversation and 
your book has uh, been such an inspiring example of how a book, an academic publishing, can do this kind of work uh, in a really unique and powerfully moving way. So thank you so much for taking the time today. This was a fabulous experience for me too, and I so appreciate what you're doing here. Lynn's book, The Accidental Reef and Other Ecological Odysseys in the Great Lakes, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can find Lynn at lynnheasley.com, and you can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books. Books.